The Small Business Rundown is the official podcast of the National Federation of Independent Business, the member-driven voice of small business. NFIB and our members advocate to keep America's small businesses strong and independent in Washington, D.C., all 50 states, and the nation's courts. Welcome to the Small Business Rundown, your inside source for small business news and analysis in Washington, D.C. and state capitals. I'm Adam Temple, NFIB Senior Vice President for Advocacy, and on this week's episode, we're covering the state of small business from the perspective of three small business owners. We'll talk about a specific tax deduction that's crucial for the majority of small business owners called the Small Business Deduction and its impact on small business owners' ability to operate and grow their businesses. Then I'll be joined by Courtney Titus Brooks, a Director of Government Relations here at NFIB, to explain the deduction and where it stands in Congress. At a recent hearing at the U.S. House Ways and Means Committee, NFIB member Wiley McDade from West Virginia testified before Congress about his personal experience as the co-owner of Devil's Due Distillery, which opened in 2021 in Kearneysville, West Virginia. So I come to Petersburg today to tell you a story about our small business located in our small little town in America. The town's called Kearneysville. It's located in Jefferson County, West Virginia. The count, this county is of incredible historic importance to the United States. George Washington didn't just sleep there, he lived there. His brother, Charles, who in 1868 founded Charlestown at the heart of the county, uh, lived there as well. The American Civil War started there at Harper's Ferry. West Virginia seceded from Virginia shortly thereafter in support of the Union, and I can tell you that the people of West Virginia are fiercely proud of their state. The people here come from all walks of life. Farmland abounds. So do small shops and boutiques and restaurants. The county is ringed by national parks, Harpers Ferry, Antietam, the Sino Canal. The two great rivers, the Shenandoah and the Potomac converge there and form the northern end of the Chesapeake Bay watershed, which flows under the nation's capital just about 40 miles away as the crow flies. I think uh, you guys probably thought as the crow flies, this place was pretty close till you, uh, till you got on the back roads and you found out that it's, it's always twice as far to get anywhere in West Virginia, but, but it's also twice as beautiful. When you cross the border, it just feels different here. John Denver captured that perfectly. And that's, I think that's why people come here. Naturally, a small distillery feels right at home here. It's true that prior to the Whiskey Rebellion in the late 1700s, many, if not most, farms had a working still. It was logistically far easier and economically more profitable to bring grain to market by the barrel than by the bushel. Appalachia to the south and west of where we are wasn't always accessible as it is now today. Today, West Virginia's rich culture and tradition is showcased at our distillery. We aim to take local grains, the same ones that have been produced there for hundreds of years, and use that same tradition to produce a product that you just can't get anywhere else. We don't look to make products better there, we just look to make them different. Jefferson County proved to be uh, the place that has everything we need to succeed. Now, geographically, our distillery is strategically placed uh, in a small business park called James Byrne near the I-81 corridor, a major north-south interstate and commerce artery. That highway bisects the eastern panhandle of West Virginia is relatively in relatively close proximity to us, which we chose to help keep freight costs low. We're also a completely electrified distillery due to the current unavailability of natural gas in our area. 
You know, natural gas boilers in the distillery industry are almost 100% more efficient than electricity. At least 75% of our agriculture inputs are supplied by the local farms in the county. Copper grain is only one part of a, much, of, of, of a much bigger production process that we have there, and our inputs are freighted in from across the United States and sometimes around the world. Our whiskey is mashed and distilled on equipment produced in Missouri. Our whiskey, by federal law, must be Asian American white oak. The oak for these barrels is sourced from all over the United States. The Ozarks, which are known for their tight-grained white oak. The Tennessee Valley, uh, which is known, that white oak is known around the world. A lot of Kentucky whiskeys are aged down there. And of course, lots and lots of oak from right here in Appalachia is used in, in the production of our whiskeys. Our bottles are produced throughout the United States and abroad. Our label production occurs in Maryland and New York, and our merchandising is a mix of locally produced craft, which we love, um, but also national commercial products from around the United States. Nearly all of these products rely on freight in working supply chains. We started our business in 2021. When we started, diesel prices were in the mid $2 range. Factories were producing at or near capacity. Warehouses were full. Choice in products, that, I'll say that again, choice in products was plentiful. Much has changed in the past two years. Fuel prices and their fluctuations have made planning difficult, especially on already small margins. Due to factory closures, glass shortages have been and continue to be a scourge on our industry. Input costs on grains have risen sharply. Something we're really actually pretty well positioned to endure because we deal a lot with local farmers, but ever present on the commercial market. Lead times are up by at least a factor of two and sometimes up to a factor of 10. And in particular, order minimums have gone up significantly. I have to buy more. And a guy like me who you know, relies on just-in-time delivery yet can't afford an entire truck, now has to buy more product at one time or put in longer and longer contracts, contract out for the whole year instead of maybe for just the quarter. The enormous glass warehouses that feed our industry remain at minimum capacity with only minor gains in, in stocks and supply chain logistics remain painful to say the least. Despite input cost increase, we're reluctant to raise prices and we haven't done so. And I believe that this is one of the main drivers keeping our clientele coming back. However, it comes at a great cost, growth. Our workforce should consist of seven to 10 in order to have work the distillery, the tasting room, the di and the distribution aspect of the business, yet we do so with five. Everyone works long hours. They wear many hats. My business colleagues in the area tell me that they have similar experiences and that hiring remains a challenge, a perceived worker or shortage of available workers. That shortage is compounded by rising home prices, soaring rents, and inaccessible credit. In the face of all these problems, our outlook looks strong. And I believe our, and I believe our community outlook is also very positive, but this is, this is West Virginia, and Mountaineers inherently know how to do more with less. So we endure and hope that Washington can work to provide stability in our markets. We need lower and more consistent fuel prices to allow for planning on thin margins. We need choice in energy to achieve efficiencies in our industry. We need to strengthen national manufacturing and refill our national commercial warehouses. 
We need to pull back from intensive industry rate hikes and stabilize local housing availability. We're just one small, proud West Virginia business out of many thousands all looking for the same thing, an opportunity to succeed. Thank you. It's a powerful statement from Wiley on the challenges small businesses face every day as they serve their local communities. Wiley and his distillery co-owner, Brian Halbert, are also featured in a recently launched NFIB campaign focused on making the small business deduction permanent. To see those ads or to learn more about the campaign, the link is in the show notes. Another proponent of small business deduction permanency is NFIB member Tina Miller. Tina owns Walkabout Outfitter, which has six locations across Virginia and 35 employees. She also submitted a statement to the Ways and Means Committee that she was kind enough to record for us here. As a small business owner, thank you for holding today's hearing on the state of the American economy. My name is Tina Miller. I am the owner of Walkabout Outfitter in Roanoke, Virginia. Walkabout Outfitter is an outdoor clothing and gear retail run by friendly expert staff with six locations serving Virginia in Richmond, Harrisonburg, Lexington, Roanoke, and Blacksburg. We carry high quality trusted brands and cater to every level of experience from AT through hikers to casual day hikers and anyone in between. From trail to tavern, we've been encouraging happiness since 2005. While we encourage happiness, I have many concerns that I would like to share with you. For the past several years, I've spent sleepless nights worrying. Is my small business going to go bankrupt? I opened my first retail store at 23 years old, all excited about having my own business, the American dream. I worked seven days a week and often even slept in the store since I lived an hour away and I'd be right back in the morning. I had a second job, waitressing, and a third job, house and farm sitting, for the first eight years of the business as I reinvested everything that the business made back into it and eventually hired employees. I always paid myself last, and that's if there was anything left to pay me, which often there was not. That's part of the blood, sweat, tears, and love that goes into owning your own business. You would think that owning and running a business eventually becomes easier, but unfortunately, it has become more and more challenging. So much of it is because of government regulations and bad policies. Walkabout Outfitter has six locations across Virginia with about 35 employees. Throughout the last three years, we've had to deal with lower sales, higher costs, fewer customers, difficult finding employees, and more paperwork. We completely thought that we would not survive the crippling weight of COVID mandates, government shutdowns, and taxes. We worked nonstop during 2020 in order to not go bankrupt. Things got so bad, my husband and I didn't pay ourselves for 10 months. We took care of our managers because it was the right thing to do. If we hadn't had savings, Walkabout Outfitter would likely not be here any longer. I went through a treatment in 2013 for horrible aggressive cancer that had about a six month prognosis that the chemotherapy didn't work. My children were three and five years old at diagnosis. But interestingly enough, I would hands down go through that again before going through 2020 again, knowing what I know now. The horrible struggles that happened during COVID, mostly caused by the government, was absolutely awful. It put my entire family in very dark places mentally as we struggled to have our business, which is part of our soul and being kept alive. I have spent so much time following bureaucrats' orders rather than working on my business. I didn't start a small business to fight with the government about staying in business. When did small business become the bad guy? Small businesses are the backbone of both Virginia and our country's economy. All told, small businesses employ 1.6 million Virginians and 61.7 million Americans nationwide. 
Our country wouldn't be the same without the innovation, the sacrifice, and entrepreneurship from small businesses. We are the ones dedicated to our communities and the first to help support local schools and charities. Yet over the past few years, it feels like small businesses are continually on the defense, pushing back on bad policies just to stay afloat. Small businesses shouldn't be considered an enemy, but rather should be seen as positive players in our economy. Why is it that I and other small business owners feel that the government hates businesses, also known as employers? Shouldn't the government be extolling small businesses and get out of their way so they can build their business, which creates more jobs, care about their communities, it occupies buildings, we pay property tax and sales tax, we donate locally, we support the small little leagues, and the list goes on and on. Look at the way cities are all going. They're all becoming any town America, as it's mainly just big corporate chains. Drive into one and you'll see. Small businesses are dying, and lots of that is because they are just so tired of fighting all the government regulations. Eventually, most small businesses will go away, and it will be just be huge corporations left. It'll be from retail stores to even something so personal as funeral parlors will all be just one big corporation. The worst part of the pandemic is past us, but so many of the burdens are still weighing us down. That's why I need Congress to focus on supporting small businesses and encouraging the small business economy. First, give us permanent tax relief. I understand the small business deduction, section 199A, will expire after 2025, as will the current individual tax rate structure. This uncertainty adds an additional pain point for small businesses. By making this tax relief permanent, it helps small businesses to come back stronger expand and hire more people and keep our communities moving forward. The small business deduction is incredibly helpful for small businesses owners like me. Second, cut red tape. Less regulation means more time and money spent helping my small business grow and hire. Increasing the regulatory burden, such as expanding the overtime exemption, will reduce small business flexibility and force us to make major changes to our operation, such as requiring currently salaried employees to clock in and clock out. We currently allow salaried employees to work more hours certain weeks in order to work fewer other hours other weeks, but increasing the overtime exemption threshold would not allow for our business to continue that wonderful flexibility that our employees love. Ultimately, it will be very demoralizing to our staff and it will harm our business and harm our employees. Third, encourage the states to use their surpluses from federal dollars to shore up their unemployment insurance trust funds. Virginia's state trust fund is low and if it isn't refilled, I'm looking at huge tax hikes. States should use the federal money it received during the pandemic instead of taking more money from my small business. Simply make it so that small businesses can stay in business. At the end of the day, that means growth for the Virginia economy and for our country's economy. I spent too many nights wondering if tomorrow's the end and the day that my small business will go under. With the right help from our leaders, many of whom are present here today, I hope to never worry about that again. Respectfully submitted, Tina Miller, Walkabout Outfitter in Virginia. As someone dealing with these challenges daily, Tina's proposed solutions carry even more weight. 
Another takeaway from this is that hearing from small businesses firsthand is an effective way to educate lawmakers and their staffs on what they should and in many cases shouldn't do to support small businesses' ability to operate and grow. And for those who've been listening to the podcast, you may remember we were recently joined by U.S. Representative John Duarte. In addition to being a newly elected member of Congress, he's an NFIB member and a small business owner in California. Afterwards, I had a chance to ask him a question about the small business deduction specifically. Here's what he had to say on the issue. The 2017 Tax Cut and Jobs Act was very, very successful and effective tax legislation on the whole. If we look at Treasury revenues, they're up. You know, so we're actually collecting more taxes with the Tax Cut and Jobs Act schedules with lower tax rates generally than we were than we were prior to that act. So we've we've kind of got the right tax rates now because it's optimized our tax collection. We also repatriated trillions of dollars in capital that was reinvested in America. We raised wages. You know, worker wages went up significantly before COVID as a tax cut and job act policy started to take place. And so we have higher treasury revenues, more repatriated capital because America's a better place to do business now. And that's reflecting with higher wages for American workers. There's really a lot to like about the Tax Cut and Jobs Act. And it narrowly, slightly redistributed tax burdens to corporations and higher income people off of working families. So it was very, um, very progressive in that way also. So if the Tax Cut and Jobs Act would have been accurately scored to begin with, all of these provisions that we're talking about, including the pass-through deduction, um, would have fit um, would have fit without a sunsetting. They would have made the, rec- the reconciliation standards. Well, the Congressional Budget Office doesn't do a very good job with what's called dynamic scoring. You know, understanding that good tax policy makes the economy grow and actually increases tax receipts that way. And so, it's my opinion that the entire Tax Cut and Jobs Act could be rescored under actual results. And I believe when they do that, we're going to find it can be made permanent um, and we can secure this, you know, very successful tax legislation and give businesses and families the security they need to invest and go forward and and have predictability um, into the future as to what the tax rules are going to be. That was Congressman John Dorte, who we appreciate joining us for a recent episode of the Small Business Rundown. Next, I'd like to introduce NFIB's Director of Government Relations, Courtney Titus Brooks. Courtney's an expert on many things here at NFIB, including tax policy and the small business deduction. Courtney, thanks for joining us and sitting in to talk about this important issue. Thanks so much, Adam. Pleased to be with you today. Courtney, can you start just by explaining the small business deduction and how we got to where we are today? Sure, happy to. So as you may know, three-quarters of our membership are organized as pass-through entities. That that means that they're S-corps, sole props, LLCs, or partnerships. They're called pass-throughs because the business taxes pass through directly to the owner's tax return. Gotcha. For these members, for these pass-through entities, again, S-corps, sole props, LLCs, and partnerships, they are able to use a small business deduction. They can claim that. It's up to 20% deduction on their qualified business income. If you're under various thresholds, you can get the full 20%. Mm -hmm. Over those thresholds, a a couple of other considerations come into play, such as W-2s and capital expenditures. Make sure to talk to your tax accountant or your CPA about how you qualify. It's line 13 on your 1040. And how specifically is it beneficial for the owners? What what can they use uh, these savings on? 
Oh, gosh. I mean, I think small business owners are far better equipped of using tax savings and sending it to D.C. and letting us decide <laughs> to what to do with that. Right. Uh, but, you know, our own research tells us that members were able to use this to reinvest the tax savings back into their businesses. They were able to expand operations, purchase equipment, and hire additional employees. So they're able to use this really to put back into their businesses and their communities. And when does it expire? After 2025. Okay, which seems like a long way off. But mm -hmm. as you well know, small business owners are constantly planning for the future mm -hmm. and how these sorts of deductions will impact them. What kind of changes can they expect to see if it expires? Oh, goodness. Well, we are careening towards a tax cliff in 25. Mm -hmm. So all the individual tax relief expires after 2025. So what does that mean, right? You have the small business deduction that we just discussed. That expires. The double exemption amount for the estate tax, that expires. The lower individual rates expire. So there's a number of tax increases on the horizon for those pass-through entities. So, again, your S-Corps, sole props, LLCs, and partnerships. All of that tax relief can expire mm -hmm. and be damaging to the small business economy. I should note here that the C-Corps, so those larger businesses, their competitors, mm -hmm. their tax relief is permanent. It was made permanent in the original bill. Correct. For us, for the smaller businesses, 75% of our members, that tax relief expires. Right. What um, we, We've heard from Wiley and Tina from Representative Duarte. Have you talked to any members, NFIB members or other small businesses that are aware of the, the deduction, what their experience has been with it? Uh, for the members that we talked to, they're very pleased with the tax relief they received from the Tax Cuts and Jobs Act, the big tax law in 2017. They are concerned that this won't be extended after 25 and what that can mean and what really that means for their competitiveness mm -hmm. against larger businesses who, again, have that permanent tax relief. Mm -hmm. And when you talk to members of Congress or their staffs, is there the sense of urgency that, that, that the small business community feels? What's the, what's the status um, of, of any efforts to make this permanent? Sure. Some are more sympathetic than others. Mm -hmm. uh, I think we, we've had some great advocates helping us try to make this permanent including the chairman of the House Ways and Means Committee for the past two Congresses. He has led the charge on making the small business deduction permanent. So we've had some great help. A number in Congress are deeply concerned we're coming up to this tax cliff, and they're ready for the fight. But they need engagement from our members. They need engagement from the small business community explaining why this deduction is so helpful. Yeah, yeah. And how you mentioned engagement. How can small business owners or supporters of small business mm -hmm. owners engage and, and help Congress understand how important this is? I like to tell our members they're their best advocates. And as much as I'm sitting here talking about this, it's so much more impactful hearing about it from Wiley or from Tina. They know their business is best. They can explain to a member of Congress what they've been able to do with their tax savings. Should this expire, the members or small business owners might have to scale back on some investments, maybe hold off an additional hiring. There's real-world consequences to this tax policy expiring. It's critical that our members or supporters of small business, you know, they're able to weigh in with their House members, their senators, and tell their stories, explain what they've been able to do with the tax savings, explain what's at risk should it lapse. Very much real-world consequences of Congress's inaction. Mm -hmm. And we've heard a lot about investment and hiring. Um, we just came through a pandemic that really bowled over a lot of small businesses. How, aside from programs like PPP, how crucial do you think the savings that they already had because of this deduction uh, were in surviving the, the pandemic? You know, I wish that we could calculate that because I think that would make this permanent on its own. Just having that one stat, how being able to have that additional funding was able to help them you know, survive the pandemic. 
So, Courtney, you've talked a little bit about who benefits from this deduction, but there's a, a lot of misunderstandings about what a small business is and, and isn't. Can you explain a little bit more about who's actually benefiting from, from the small business deduction? Of course. Happy to. And, and I mentioned a few times about it's called pat and it sounds so wonky pass through entities but really guys it's just s corps sole props llc's and partnerships those organized as such and that's really the vast majority of how most small businesses are organized across the united states when we say this is the small business deduction it really is to benefit small businesses uh, there is a couple of misconceptions because the business you know the income flows through to them to their personal tax returns so they pay the business taxes on their individual returns so I love the story of John Sullivan, one of our members in Massachusetts. He spoke at a tax day summit last year. And he said, you know, I told my wife, I, I earned a million dollars last year. And she's like, where is it? <laughs> and he said, what so many business owners understand, it's reinvested. It was back into, he had a drywall business. So it was back in materials, back in trucks, back in labor, what he could do to expand his businesses and to be, or to expand his business and to be successful. So, so many business owners understand that. So when you earn this money, you're still putting it right back in the business. It belongs to the business. Right, right. In terms of big business and small business, what does the small business deduction do to level the playing field with the big guys? So back in 2017, when Congress was considering the Tax Cuts and Jobs Act, so that big tax law, uh, one of the first initiatives from the House was to lower the corporate rate, to make it 21% a flat rate, which was a significant uh reduction in what the C-Corps were paying. That's great. And that's terrific for those companies. It was made permanent. However, you know, NFIB objected that there wasn't enough relief for the pass-throughs. There wasn't enough relief for our small businesses, our S-Corps, sole props, LLCs, and partnerships, and that we needed something to help level that playing field. Even though the individual rates were lowered, there was still a tremendous discrepancy mm-hmm. between the C-Corps and pass-throughs. Again, Pastors represent the vast majority of small businesses in the United States. NFIB worked diligently and, and very, um, very hard with both the House and the Senate to ensure that small business owners were not left behind, that there was something to help make both of those business structures competitive. Right. So that one side did not get a greater advantage over its competitors. That's how we have the small business deduction. That's how it was born out of those efforts, ensuring that small businesses were able to compete with larger businesses. I think that's a great place to leave it, Courtney. Thanks for your time today and for walking us through this issue, uh, for telling us how listeners can get involved to push Congress to take action before the deduction ends. Appreciate your time. Thanks so much, Adam. It's always a pleasure to, to be with you and to explain to our members and supporters of small business why the small business deduction is so important. Listeners, if you're interested in learning more about the small business deduction or if you'd like to tell us your story, we want to hear it. There's a link to resources and where to share your story in today's episode description. And now I want to thank you, the listeners, for joining us today on the Small Business Rundown. We'll be back every two weeks bringing you small business news and analysis from Washington, D.C. and state capitals so that you, whether you're a business owner or a supporter of one, can continue to blaze a trail. The Small Business Rundown is brought to you by NFIB the voice of small business. You can find us at NFIB.com and on Twitter, Facebook, Instagram, and LinkedIn.